<coughs> All right. Well, uh, let's uh, go ahead and begin, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have uh, this time to uh, consider how your word instructs us about the work that you have done in the past and the work that you're going to do in the future. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, through this time, you would speak to us, that you would challenge us. Father, we know that there is uh, always uh, danger, because your word warns us, that there is serious danger in knowing your word well, and yet treating it with a cold and uncaring heart. And so we pray that uh, whatever truth you have for us here this evening, you would give us the grace that we need from you uh, to accept as part of your message to us, not just to learn with our minds, but to embrace by faith. And we pray that you would do this for your own glory and that you would do it through the grace of Christ, uh, who is the only way, the only uh, uh, channel that we have to approach you. And so we ask with, with gratitude in his name. Amen. All right, uh, so we're just picking up where we left off last time. Uh, can, can you see? I can move back a little bit if that's better. You guys okay there? Is that worse? Just... All right. This way? Okay. Uh, I mean, look, these are real things, so just signal me. Uh, so we're just going to pick up uh, from where we left off last time. We are talking about specifically uh, the, uh, the second part of eschatology, the one that doesn't get so much attention, and that is uh, personal eschatology, your personal future, which is why we have here the future of your name here. And there are some things that fall in this category uh, that will happen to everybody at the same time, like uh, the judgment and the resurrection. And because they happen to everybody at more or less the same time, we're going to talk about them later uh, when we get to that part of cosmic eschatology, cosmic theology of the future. What happens to everybody in the future, but at different times, is death. And so that's mainly what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to be focused on the theology of death. Um, I just want to remind you guys uh, that we have a Google Classroom. This is the invite code. Uh, and I want to just shout out to uh, Cody, who tried to get a discussion going there. A couple weeks ago, you guys saw the left him hanging, but that's okay. He still loves you. Um, but do, uh, do feel free. Don't feel obligated, but do feel, feel free uh, to put questions on there or raise things that you think are interesting um, uh, for others to comment. Some of you guys have emailed me, and that's fine too. Uh, but just feel free to use that as a resource uh, for whatever it's good for. <clears throat> uh, first, though, before we jump into today's lesson... Uh, let's do our lovely review, okay? First question, this should be a super easy one because I already told you the answer. It's two halves of eschatology, what are they? Two parts of the discipline of what the Bible teaches us about the future. Personal, Personal which is the future of you, and cosmic, which is the future of everything altogether. Okay, great. So that's what's included in them too. And uh, then we talked about the big story, the meta-narrative. Um, and uh, we talked about those four parts. If we can just remember one thing, those four parts would be a good thing. Anybody, 
give me the first part. It's creation. creation and then very rapidly fall. Both of those have huge implications. And then redemption, redemption which occurs with the coming of Christ. And then restoration, which is partly but not entirely in the future. We'll get to that later. Okay? Um, and then so let's talk about redemption and restoration. Somebody give me just some some of the things that jumped out to you about redemption first. Anything there in redemption? Something that seems significant. What are we talking about when we're talking about redemption? Okay, yes, good. So this occurs uh, um, in several key actions of Jesus. And one of them is his, his death on the cross. On the cross. There's no T at the end of that word, sorry. <clears throat> uh, good. Anything, anything else? Specifically how it connects to the earlier parts of the story. So we have creation and fall. And how does redemption kind of close the circuit on that? Okay, good. So here's God's, God begins reaching out right away, right? And so here is the, uh, do you remember we talked just very briefly about what Paul calls the mystery? It's this thing that had been mysterious and obscure to people. Why is God reaching out to us? Why does God care so much about us? Why does God love us? Because it seems like he should totally hate us. And sometimes it seems like he does. It's very confusing. Everything becomes clear with the coming of Christ. It becomes clear that God has an actual way, an actual mechanism for loving people. That it's not just like sometimes he talks about judgment and sometimes he talks about mercy and it's like flip a coin and see what you get today. That's not it. It's that it's always judgment and at the same time always mercy and that was built into Jesus. Good. We'll just keep moving otherwise we'll stay here forever. Uh, one element from uh, restoration <coughs> or recreation that jumps out. Yeah. Okay, good. So creation is healed or fixed or restored, right? There's this thing that was happening in the beginning and there's been this very, very winding road that takes us back up to where we started and now we can do the thing that we were doing. There's more to it than that, but that's not a wrong way to look at it. Okay, good. What's that? Yes, exactly, because the entire creation belongs to this package uh, under God. So, with that in mind, let's move on and let's talk about uh, life and death. And I want us to start by thinking <clears throat> a little bit more about this question of death. What is death? What are we talking about when we talk about death? And why does death happen to people? Can we get maybe a little bit more into it theologically than just like people get sick and they die or people die because of sin in some way. Can we get a little bit closer to it? I'm going to have a bunch of Bible references on the screen. So anytime there's a Bible reference, I just want to encourage you, turn to that passage and, and we'll, we'll try to read all of them. We probably won't be able to read all of them. We're going to try to read all of them. Okay. <clears throat> so death. Michael Whitmer uh, wrote a great book on death, which I recommend broadly, called The Last Enemy. 
really good book. It, it seems like when I went to get the link to put on the class page, it seems like maybe it's not available in ebook format anymore, which is probably a weird licensing problem, but I've got some links out there anyway. Um, I, I really do recommend it. If you're interested in thinking about what the Bible teaches about death, Whitmer's book, The Last Enemy, is a great choice. And he says this, if death were no big deal, there would be no reason to be a Christian. He overstates his case a little. But I think just a little. Um, because our approach to God in Christ is in some extremely fundamental ways designed by God to undo what was done in the death that came on the whole human race. <clears throat> so let's think a little bit more about what that is. The scriptures teach that life properly belongs to God. Okay, so the scriptures teach us that life is not just uh, kind of like this biological concept of a certain set of properties that can happen in certain organisms, like it reproduces, it acts, it whatever, all that kind of stuff. This, the Bible does not give us a, a biological definition of life. It gives us a theological definition of life. And probably the key passage, one of the key passages on this, is in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking, and he says here in John, we won't have read this one all together because I've got it right here, but he says in John 5, the Father has life in himself. And what else does he say? Do you remember what comes next? He's also granted to the Son to have life in himself. So this is something... This is, this life is a property of God. God is the giver of life, which is why we confess in the words of the Nicene Creed that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. And someday we'll do a, a theology proper and we'll talk more about that. But life, life is something that God has as his own, right? What is it? that God does not have at all. Darkness. Good, darkness, or maybe we could say more specifically, sin, right? And so because God is completely separate from sin, and because God is the source of all life, then there is a necessary connection, not, not just a random connection between sin and death. That connection must be there. It's not that God says, nobody touch this tree. And if you do, um, death, that's it. That's not the way we should think of it at all. God is not casting about for some punishment and he picks death. Death must necessarily flow from sin because life only comes from God and there's no sin at all. There's no connection between sin and God. So that means that that death originally flowed from sin and now flows from sin. We won't read Genesis 3 because we looked at it last time, but you remember this is the giving of that curse, right? The curse of death. Somebody read for us Romans 5:12. Cody, go ahead. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death 
through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. But he's going to go on and say a bunch more stuff. But that's enough for us right there. It's a sentence fragment. I know it's terrible. But I just want us to grab death comes through sin and not otherwise. We're going very fast here. There's a bunch of questions that we can't answer. But I hope that that much at least is clear. Right? Life comes from God. God has no sin. We get the sin. We're cut off from the source of life. And so we can think then of death as a cutting off or as a separation. And for the purposes of our theological concept here, we want to think of it as unnatural separation, an inappropriate or a wrong kind of separation, a separation that is not supposed, it's not part of the plan. Okay? Somebody read Hebrews 2, 14, 15, 16 for us. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, good. So what we have here is human beings made by God, right? And then they're completely separated from God by these actions that the devil takes. And they're enslaved not only to sin, but also to death. And so Jesus comes to reintegrate us. Now, death has several aspects. We're going to talk about three of them just briefly here. The first one is what we could call spiritual death. Spiritual death means separation from God. Okay? Alienation is the word that I've used here. And that just means a kind of separation that happens when people should be together. Right? So it's like you and your kids, you and your best friend. And then something happens. There's this big disaster that occurs in the relationship. And now these people that should naturally be together, there's, it's not cool. They don't want to talk. I don't want to talk to them. They don't want to talk to me. That's the concept of alienation. So it's this kind of distance that comes into the relationship between us and God. And the, the, um, what we could call maybe the judicial guilt that arises from sin. That is that God doesn't relate to us only as a father, like we should have a good relationship with God our Father. That's super true. Also, God relates to us as a ruler. He's the, the uh, governor of all things. And there are certain laws that have to be obeyed. But we haven't done that. And so we are separated just the way that if you go out and you know, shoot somebody, you're, you are immediately cut off from the rest of, of our society. Right? You're in a separate class. You can't do the stuff you did before. You've got to be dealt with as a person outside of normal society. That's what sin does to us in relationship to the cosmos. We're under the ban of God's law. So that's spiritual death. Then we have physical death, which is the kind of decay gradually and breaking down and separation of the body and spirit. That is the uh, material part of us that God created and the immaterial part of us that God created. These two are meant to form a single unit. 
but they don't. <laughs> it all comes apart at the seams. What does Genesis 5.5 say? Anybody know what it says without looking at it? If you can't say it without looking at it, you just guess, then somebody read it for us. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And he died. That was not part of the original design. Adam was supposed to carry forward at once both the immaterial and material parts of God's creation. Right? So God creates angels, and the Bible is very clear that angels are spirits, right? They're spiritual entities, but humanity is really unusual. It's distinctive. We are part animal, part spirit, and you just plug them into each other, and they run. Isn't that cool? Except they don't now. This death, it disintegrates those two halves. And then, and this one uh, is a bit, it's a bit vague, but I'll call it personal death. That is, as people, as persons, as agents in God's world, we're supposed to do a lot of things. We're, we're here, you remember, God made us to accomplish certain things. He made us in his own image, and that implies a certain kind of activity. And there are certain specific types of authority that are granted to human beings generally. And yet, our life in the world is marked by frustration, and that's something that's very familiar to everybody who's lived any amount of time, but also by futility. This is the key burden of Ecclesiastes. Somebody read for us Ecclesiastes 9.3. Anybody? Sure, go ahead. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Not a super cheerful verse. You probably have never seen that one on a coffee mug, right? Nobody puts that on like a Bible cover. Because the key burden of Ecclesiastes, the message that is being expressed there, is the observation fundamentally of the futility of human life. And all the stuff that people do and all the stuff that they accomplish, which can be incredible on an individual level, just immediately comes to nothing. And people are almost immediately forgotten as soon as they're off the stage. Do you know your grandparents? Do you know your great-grandparents? Do you know their names? Do you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? That would be pretty unusual if you did. And if you do, then just go back one or two more and you won't. Right? These are people who, historically speaking, are within arm's reach of us. And they are totally forgotten. How does that happen? That's death. That's, per that's what I'm calling here personal death. We're separated from the uh, validity and vitality of the things that we do. Constantly frustrated. Some of this is alluded to in Genesis chapter 3, where God says to Adam... <clears throat> From now on, when you work, you're going to be working in difficulty, right? There's going to be not only your incredibly difficult effort by the sweat of your brow are you going to get food, but also that this land that you were supposed to be taking care of, constantly there's going to be weeds, there's going to be thorns. 
Why? Everything comes apart. You, you make something and it comes apart. As soon as you turn your back, you look back again. Oh, what is that? Right? That's what I'm talking about here. Okay. Questions on this. The concept of what death is theologically. It's really these two slides. Both where it comes from, from sin, and its components. This makes sense to us. Anybody have any questions on that? Yeah. Um, I I really benefit from reading Randy Alcorn's book. Yeah, that's a super good one. Alcorn's book, though, deals not mainly with death, but with heaven. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and so a lot of stuff in Alcorn's book is more relevant for things that we'll talk about when we come to uh, the consummation of cosmic eschatology. Not all, but in general. Whereas Alcorn's book is a lot more focused on what's going to happen on an individual level to people and how we should think about that as Christians. All right, so let's move on then. Uh, Because we're Christians. We're not just reading the Old Testament as Jewish readers and looking at all this stuff. Instead, the, uh, the redemption of Christ has begun. And so the scriptures teach here in Galatians 2 that in the death of Christ, we also die. I don't know if you have ever read that and felt a little bit vague. Certainly there are depths there. But one of the key things that is being expressed in that text is that our death in the death of Christ, that we believe in Jesus Christ And we are now in Christ. The New Testament says like about a billion times. We're in Christ. That means what happens to Christ happens in us as well, in many senses. Our death occurs in the death of Christ. And that separates us from our sin. So Greg, can you read Galatians 2.19-21 there? For through the law I died to the law so that I may live to God. Okay, so pause. Right? Through the law, and I won't take the time to show all my work here because we don't have the time. But through the law, I died to the law. What the apostle means is that through the work of Jesus Christ in keeping the law and our association with Christ, we are now separated from the punishment of the law that was coming on us. Right? Continue. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Pause. That is a radical statement it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me no this is something that's already happened right good Uh, continue greg and the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself to me I do not nullify the grace of God for its righteousness for through the law that Christ died for So what he's saying is, I have already been separated from the judgment of sin through Jesus Christ. And right now, in this body, I am going on and I'm experiencing the death that we experience physically, but I'm looking forward to the time when that restoration will be completed in me. That's why he says, the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I'm looking towards something happening in the future. 
One of the things that is going to happen to almost all of us in the future, when I say almost all, I don't mean almost all of us in this room, I mean almost all humanity, is that we are going to die. Perhaps, in the mercy of God, you and I will be one among the few who do not die. But that will be a very, very few indeed. And it is much more likely that we will die. But when we die, the scripture says that we die in Christ. And that that's quite different from dying alone. Everybody else who dies, dies alone. Because nobody can go with you. That's the fundamental thing about death, right? That you are being separated from others in a more basic way than any other separation you experience. You're, you're carved right out. But not when you die in Christ. Because Christ is already there. He is the person who has not only crossed over to the other side, but has come back. And so he uniquely is able to accompany us in our death. And so that's why I say here, the believer does not die alone. We all know Psalm 23, right? (coughs) This is one of the basic reasons why Psalm 23 has been without question the most popular text for Christian funerals in history because it expresses in the words of the psalmist the way that God through Christ is with the believer in death and what all of us look forward to in our death. Something that is an enemy, something that is horrible and terrifying and painful but it's completely different to face it side by side with Jesus than to face it the way everybody else has to face it. And specifically, that we do not die in fear of death. What is 1 Corinthians 15.55? 1 Corinthians 15, all about death and the resurrection, right? But 15.55, that's a verse that we all know. Somebody read it for us. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Right? And, and the idea here is that death cannot make the, the, the believing Christian flinch. Right? It's kind of like standing in an airplane and you're looking out and you're going to jump. It's very different if you know you're wearing a parachute. <laughs> right? And sure, it might still be scary and you might still really have to chuck yourself out there. But it's not at all like doing it without a parachute, right? There's no fear in death. Specifically, let's think for a minute about the death of our bodies in Christ. Uh, I think that we can sometimes, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, God willing. I think that we can sometimes uh, neglect the importance that the scripture places on our bodies. And it does so in a very basic way by placing a lot of importance on the creation. That is that this world that we live in was made by God. And I touched on this before. It was not made by some other jerk, like is taught in Manicheanism, right? Uh, It was made by God and it's good. And so all the things that we have in the natural world around us 
are not, that they can be dangerous to us, they can be troublesome to us, they can be painful for us because of our, the various entanglements of sin that we have. And Pastor Nate talked about this last week and on Sunday when he talked about uh, the, the rich uh, young ruler, right? There are these things that can be problematic for us, but they're not problematic for us because they're part of the material world. God made that stuff. And he has key plans for it going forward. So one of the key elements that the New Testament teaches is that our bodies still belong to us. Sometimes people will say, you know, you go to a funeral and people will say, uh, well, you know, it's so tough seeing mom like this. And people will say, oh, your mom's not there anymore. She's gone. And there's a sense in which that's obviously true. But there's also a sense in which it's not true, right? Because your, like your body is the one you're getting back. Not some other body, not somebody else's body. Yours, personally. And obviously there's a lot about that that we don't understand. We'll talk more about resurrection later. But because your body belongs to you, because it's still yours, and what, what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians is that it's, it's like the relationship between a seed and a flowering plant. There's a fundamental identity between those two, even though one, he says, is perishable, which means that it can decay, it can break down. And the one that we get in the resurrection is imperishable, which means it can't. That's still basically you. That is the reason why Christians have historically practiced burial. And again, I just want to comment on this because it's one of those things that we can go by and never think about. Um, we lived in China for a long time. And the Chinese and most of the Asian cultures practice uh, the burning of the dead, right? Cremation. Uh, that's particularly associated with certain Buddhist rites. But Christians have always tended to bury their dead. And the reason for that is really simple. It's because that body is coming back to you. Now, it's not that burning it somehow messes that up, right? Sometimes people talk like that. That is a very fundamental misunderstanding of what God is doing at the resurrection. God is going to resurrect people who are millennia old. Time has done more to their bodies than burning ever could. There's nothing left of them. Right? There might be people that God resurrected who were in the ground for so long that they turned into oil and then people ran it through their cars. Right? Like, we're talking about some extreme stuff. Burning your body is not somehow like ruining the resurrection. But it's a gesture. Right? It's uh, a, a way of looking toward the future. That doesn't mean that Christians have to bury their dead doesn't mean that cremation is ungodly or something like that. Again, I've heard people say that. I think that's really an, an overdrawing of the thing. But there is a reason why Christians bury their dead. And that's why. So let's talk just a little bit then about what's called the interim state. Interim means in between, right? So the interim state refers to the time between when we die and the, the great events that draw cosmic history 
into the next stage. The resurrection, the judgment, right? There's time between those two. How much time? We don't know. (laughs) But for some people, it's been quite a long time already. So what is that stage like? There's a lot that we don't know. But there are some things that we do know. 2 Corinthians 5, the first six verses, uh, are that's a passage that lays out some of that stuff. Jeff? Is, is this a statement that we are um, uh, separated from our bodies? Right. So between death and the judgment and resurrection. That, that period. That's the interim state. All right. Um, who wants to read that for us? Somebody read that for us. Anybody? Somebody. Start reading. Sure. Go ahead. For we know that it Good. So there's a couple things there. He says, listen, we die and then we, we don't have our bodies, but we're with the Lord, right? We're away from the body. We're with the Lord, right? But there is some stuff that we're missing. We don't have our bodies during that time. And we know that God is going to give us our bodies later. That's why that's one of the reasons why God has given us his spirit as a down payment against what we'll receive at the resurrection. Right? Which might seem a little strange, but think about it this way. We all have the Spirit as Christians. We know the Scripture is very clear. It talks in, in a couple places about the Spirit being the down payment, which means that what's coming in the future is way better than the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is just in like a transition reward from Jesus for us. And specifically what the apostle is talking about here is the resurrection, right? So at this moment, uh, I die and I'm, I'm there with the Lord in heaven. I don't have my body. I am what the apostle calls here naked. That is only part of me is there. I'm missing my body. And this is, as he says, not the ideal state. This is not the goal. The goal is not to get rid of the body so we can live pure spiritual existences. That actually losing our bodies is in some sense a step back, even though it's not a big problem for us because we're there with the Lord, right? But we're here in this kind of waiting state. We're all like looking forward to what's gonna happen. Okay, and then this part we've already mentioned at rest and at home with our Lord. That is the interim state of those who die in Christ before uh, the renewal of all things, before the judgment and the resurrection. What about those who die apart from Christ? So here we don't have as much very specific teaching. We'll talk about some of these things that come out a, a little bit later in the lesson. Um, but in general, we call this hell. 
And this account in Luke 16 is an important one for thinking through the, ab- the aspects of that. What is this? It's the rich man and Lazarus. Now this, uh, this section is um, a challenging one for us to know exactly how we should think about it because this is not Jesus teaching his students about things. This is Jesus telling a story. And so because Jesus is telling a story and he tells all kinds of stories that we know are not meant to be taken literally, right? Um, And then it's a little bit hard for us to know exactly what's going on here. But I'm going to say with, again, we don't have time for me to show all my work here. Um, But I'm going to say that I think this account of the rich man and Lazarus uh, is something that we can base theology on because everything that's here is very consistent with what God teaches, particularly through Jesus elsewhere. So if we take this as not just a story, but a description of the future state of unbelievers, then there are a few aspects for us to be aware of. The first one is that the unbelieving dead are imprisoned. And this idea of prison is something that we see not just here, but in a number of places. That is, they're in a place that they cannot get out of, but they want to. Their goal is to get out, but they can't. Second, that the unbelieving dead are aware of what's happening, that they're conscious, not conscious in like a physical sense, but that they have some awareness and that their awareness is of misery, suffering, torment, or whatever words you want to put on it, that it's really, really bad. Again, in the situation with the rich man and Lazarus, here's the rich man and he is uh, suffering here because of fire. And fire is a, a picture that Jesus uses frequently to talk about the state of the unbelieving dead. Um, and then critically, the unbelieving dead are not able to change things that happen to them during their life. This is another aspect, I think, of what it means to be imprisoned. Um, but in this story in particular, the rich man is aware that he has made some significant fatal mistakes. He's aware of that. He wants to escape from his imprisonment. And he, although he doesn't um, do one really, really important thing. What does he not do? What do we not hear him doing? He does not repent. Exactly. He does not say to Abraham, Oh, I repent of my sins against God. Please let me cross over. And then Abraham says, no, you can't. That doesn't occur. And I think that's extremely significant. Right? Why would that be? Why would what be? Well, if they thought they could get out by repenting. Who? Jesus is telling a story about this guy. Actual people in hell, as far as the scripture gives us to believe, never repent. They don't want to repent. But they want out, sure. I mean, that's very common. There's a lot of people in prison who want out who are not sorry for what they did, right? But I mean, like, some prisoners there in prison, they would think, to get out, I need to do this, 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 and that. And, you know, they have this moment 
where they, they become, you call it, like, they can get back into society by, by doing certain things, by showing that they're living. Uh, Sure, sure. That's, that's because human prisons are, are designed in almost all cases to be temporary, right? This is not. This is different. This is the situation that the unbelieving dead are in until the judgment. That's, that's the only place that they can go, is they can wait until the judgment. We'll get to the judgment later. But in terms of their, their like, uh, if we want to call it their like psychological or their spiritual reaction, the Bible, uh, it never says this exactly, but it suggests, I think, very strongly to us that the unbelieving dead remain unbelieving, that their experiences of suffering and hell don't bring them to a point of actual repentance, that it just makes them angry. This is captured in a really unique way um, in a book by C.S. Lewis. I, I don't remember if I've mentioned, did I mention C.S. Lewis's book earlier, The Great Divorce? Yeah, it's captured there really well because this guy is following all these people around who have come from hell and each one of them, one after another, is urged to repent, which is not something the Bible says. And each of them is like, nah, <laughs> I'm, I would rather go back to hell than repent. Um, and, I, you know, even though the book and the, and the author says, I'm not trying to describe what heaven is actually like. Please don't think that's what this is. Um, but I think he captures something really vital that the scriptures point to, which is that people are in hell for rebelling against God and that that continues in some form or another. Right. Yeah. And that, that happens for all kinds of people. Right. So we're, I'm already shorter of time, but let's, let's press on. Uh, so the second part I want us to talk about here is some theological issues with the nature of the interim state. Okay. We're going to talk about four of them as quickly as we can here. Four things that have been questions for people as we think about what is it like for my loved ones who, is, who have died, or what's it going to be like for me after I die? What's the nature of that? We looked at some passages already, but there are some elements that maybe are still unclear. The first one is what's called, it's a, it's a position called soul sleep, which is that when you die, you just kind of go to sleep and you stay asleep until the resurrection. Uh, this is uh, a position that has been held by different people throughout the history of the church. Um, Seventh-day Adventists believe this. Jehovah's Witnesses believe this now. There were some Anabaptists who taught this in the past. And uh, there's a really simple reason why people teach this position. The, the reason for thinking this uh, is because the New Testament frequently uses the language of sleep to describe death. So in Acts 7, right, here's Stephen... Somebody hits him in the head of the big rock and it says he fell asleep. Or 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about witnesses to the resurrection. He says, most are still living, 
but some have fallen asleep. This language had such a powerful impact on the culture of the early Christians that when Christians began to um, have their own spaces where they would bury their dead, they called them sleeping places. And that word in Latin, sleeping, which is comateria, comes to us now as the root of the word coma or as the root of the word cemetery, which means a sleeping place, right? So this is, this is some like really basic background language for the church for a long time. The reason that I think soul sleep is not a biblical teaching is because of what we just read about the interim state. And we've just read this passage, right? Where the apostle Paul talks about how we're gonna be absent from the body and we're gonna be present with the Lord. And in that situation, we're going to be looking forward to receiving our bodies, right? That, that we're aware of what is happening. And in fact, even uh, you think about in Luke 23, this is our Lord on the cross. He says to the bandit who is crucified next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? So the, the New Testament suggests quite strongly that things are active in the interim state. Uh, Hebrews 12 is another great passage for that. It won't take time for that, but you can look them all up later. Yes. Yeah, so that's a great, that's a great question. Um, that's obviously, so the, the New Testament does not really operate much on the level of the philosophical, which is what we talk about. Some of the key uh, teachers of the church were really big in that direction. So as you may know, Augustine was at, at least as influential as a philosopher as he was a theologian, Thomas Aquinas, some other guys like that. Um, and that's, so in that sense, that's an ancient solution that's been proposed that this is all a matter of perspective. The New Testament doesn't talk about it in that way at all, which doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that we don't know. What it does do is from time to time refer to people in the interim state and they seem to be active. <laughs> and so that could be um, from their perspective, something that's extremely brief uh, or maybe not. We just don't really know enough about it. But I think that the, the idea of sleeping doesn't fit the data well at all. Uh, if we use it as a metaphor for death, it makes perfect sense. If we use it as more than that, like it's actually describing everyone just sort of snoozing up there in heaven, that there's, that's inconsonant with a number of passages. Does that address what you're saying? I, I'm actually not. I'm just saying either way, <laughs> what the language that we have to deal with says things that suggest activity versus sleep. Whether that lasts for a long time or a very short time is not actually addressed, not directly at all. So I'm kind of agnostic on that question. D does that, you see what I'm getting at there? Yeah. Um, but uh, Augustine specifically deals with questions of, of time and the perception of time. 
in some of his writings. Uh, okay, second one uh, is what is called limbo. And limbo is also called compartment theory, particularly when it's being addressed by Protestant theologians. Limbo is the teaching that hell has two bits, the good bit and the bad bit, right? And the good bit is the bit of hell that everyone goes into that is uh, someone who belongs to God, is a follower of God before the coming of Jesus, right? And then the bad bit is where everyone else goes. And then what happens when Jesus comes is he goes into the, the, the good part of hell. And note that good, as you can see from this picture, good is extremely relative. It's just not as bad as the bad part. And Jesus comes in and he busts the door down and he rescues all of the old covenant saints from uh, limbo and brings them up to heaven. That's the, that's the basic position, right? This it has been the understanding of most Christians throughout history. Not only people that we would call Roman Catholics, but also before that and after that. Uh, so you're in quite the minority if you don't believe in limbo. I don't think that limbo is a great teaching, but there's some reasons for it. The first one is the way that the Old Testament talks about death. So for example, here's Job in Job 14, 13. He is crying out for God and he says, hide me in, and the Hebrew word there is Sheol, right? But if you have a King James Bible, it might be translated, or, or even older translations, might translate that as hell. Uh, but then we also have these bad guys. Here's number 1630. That's Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Remember them? They're the ones who raised this uh, insurrection against Moses. And it says, uh, Moses says, look, you're going to see that I'm really the spokesperson for God because the earth is going to open and these people, these rebels, are going to go straight down to Sheol. And the word there is, again, very often translated hell in older translations. So that means everyone's going to hell, <laughs> right? Like you're reading these older English translations or you're trying to think about how the Old Testament presents itself, um, it seems to have everyone going to hell. Then we have 1 Peter 3.19, uh, which says that Christ went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. And uh, there's another passage in which the Apostle Paul says that when Christ rose again, he led in his train a host of captives, right? You know this, these passages. So uh, many people in the history of the church have said, see, that's talking about Christ returning from the dead. He's bringing all these saints with him out of captivity into heaven. And so then everyone in the old covenant, was they were all in hell, and he's solving that problem. He's bringing them up into heaven. That's the position, and that's the, the underlying rationale for it. I don't think that limbo is good theology, though, because, and this is, this is the position adopted by basically all modern translations of the scriptures, Sheol, the Hebrew word, is probably not very good. It, it, the best translation of it is probably not hell, as in the New Testament understanding of hell. 
which is spiritual and separate from heaven. Rather, I think it's definitely better to understand Sheol as referring to grave or death or the place of death or becoming part of the group of dead people. It's a picture for death rather than for hell. Um, and I'll let you look up these, these passages here. Um, and similarly in uh, Ephesians where we have this, you know, this like here's Christ uh, leading a, a host of captives uh, in Ephesians 4. Um, I don't think it's really a clear reading at all to understand it as him descending to hell and then leading a host of captives with him. I think that that him descending refers clearly to his incarnation instead of going to hell. And the passage, uh, 1 Peter 3.19, about Christ preaching to people in prison is a super challenging passage. Um, If you want to just take a go at it sometime, go into a bookstore or if you have commentaries at home, open to 1 Peter 3 and just see what it says. One of the things, I guarantee you, the paragraph will start like this. This passage is famously difficult, right? And so when you have a passage like that, where no one's super sure what it means, one of our best rules, we're going to come back to this again and again and again, is maybe don't write a whole distinct theology position from it, right? We've got this passage over here. Maybe it's about Noah, or maybe it's about Jesus. Maybe it's about Old Testament saints, or maybe it's about these rebels. Maybe it's about salvation. Maybe it's about preaching. Maybe we're actually, we're frankly not really sure what it's about. That one is not a great one to build your special theological idea on, right? It's like maybe... You shouldn't drive your car out to the middle of the river. There are better places to park your car. Maybe the ice will hold, but maybe it won't. And the longer you leave it parked there, the more questionable it gets, right? This, this is uh, something that we're going to return to again and again in our questions about theology. I think limbo is not great theology. I think it's a lot easier to understand it as just death in the Old Testament And then in the New Testament, Jesus' resurrection raises everyone rather than having kind of like hell light for Old Testament saints. Um, I think that creates a lot more problems than it solves. Uh, We haven't talked about limbo and children because that's just a Catholic doctrine. It's not attested anywhere else. If you come from a Catholic background, you may be familiar with that. There are two other aspects that I want us to talk about, but we're totally out of time. So we'll pick up uh, and try to, maybe we'll cover those next week. Talk about, actually, that's a great question. Would you like me to talk about purgatory and the offer of the gospel after death next week? Or is it like, eh, maybe we should just get on with it. Don't tell me now. Think about it. Okay, just think about it. And then send me a message or talk to me after the class. Now will help me arrange my material for next week. Okay? Because we're super out of time. (laughs) Maybe I am. You'll know if I teach a lesson about purgatory, then you'll know what it is. All right.
Let's, uh, we'll just quit right there. Corey, can you pray for us and we'll be done. Father God, we thank you for prayer. Lord, I thank you that we can sit here and we can pull your word out dear God and just thank you for those who have um, really delved deep into this and trying to understand your word dear God and just thank you for Dave and the teaching here. I just ask that you would please help us that we would, as the Bereans that um, topics, like, topics like this dear God would drive us to your word and that we would seek answers through the scripture and through close um, communication with you through prayer, dear God. I just ask that you just continue to um, bless the class. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Corey. Uh, just remind everyone, if you maybe you missed some references or you weren't sure about one point, these uh, presentations are all in the Google Classroom uh, site. So feel free to just go there. Here is the code right there Whoop, there it is um and feel free to join that download those presentations if you want to double check on anything and i'll see you guys next week bye